Good morning. We want to first of all wish a happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers. You serve and give of yourselves in more ways than we can count. And we want to make sure that you know that we are grateful for you. We are continuing our sermon series going through the Gospel of Mark, and we are picking up in chapter 6. One of the things we have seen so far in Mark's Gospel is a variety of reactions and responses to Jesus during the early stages of his ministry. In Mark chapter 1, we read how Jesus began his public ministry by proclaiming, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. After he began his public ministry, he began to teach and perform miracles. Many people responded with amazement. They were astonished by what they heard and saw. Some responded with varying degrees of faith, yet their faith was mixed with confusion and misunderstanding. Some people in particular, the Jewish religious establishment, responded with hostility, believing Jesus to be a threat. On the one hand, he appeared as an ordinary man from an ordinary place with an ordinary background. On the other hand, his teaching and miraculous powers were extraordinary. In this way, Jesus was progressively revealing himself as the Christ, the Son of God, but not in a way that people expected. The kingdom of God was breaking in, and the glory of God was being revealed, but many people failed to have ears to hear and eyes to see. But despite the varied responses, the ministry of Jesus continued and even expanded. A couple of themes we are going to see in our passage today are rejection and mission. In light of this, I think we need to ask a few important questions, including how are we to understand the reality of rejection in following Jesus? Is there any comfort for Christians when we experience rejection? And ultimately, how are we to respond to rejection? I believe our passage this morning will serve to instruct and encourage us regarding some of these things. We are going to be reading Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Again, that is Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if in any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. 
And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So in the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus and his disciples returned to his hometown. His hometown was Nazareth. Of course, he was born in the town of Bethlehem, but then his parents had to flee with him to Egypt where he spent a little bit of time. But then they returned, but when they returned, they did not go back to Bethlehem. They went to Nazareth, and Nazareth is where Jesus did most of his growing up. During his ministry, his base of operations was the town of Capernaum, but his hometown was Nazareth. And just as he did in other towns and villages, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and taught people from the scriptures. Once again, we see the priority of uh, teaching and preaching in the ministry of Jesus. He was focused on proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and calling people to repent and believe the gospel. In Mark chapter 1, verse 38 we, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus said he came out so that he could preach and teach around to different towns and villages to as many people as possible. He came out to preach and proclaim the gospel. And in the parable of the sower, Jesus portrayed himself as the one who generously sowed the gospel seed far and wide, intent on reaping a large harvest. He continued his generous spreading of the gospel seed when he came to his hometown of Nazareth. But sadly, when Jesus came to his hometown, he was not well received. His teaching was not embraced, and the good news of the kingdom fell on deaf ears. The people of Nazareth said, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? In other words, they recognized that Jesus possessed unique wisdom and extraordinary power. You might think this would lead them to see that Jesus was special in some way that they had not previously realized. You might think that they would see these miraculous powers, they would hear his teaching and, and think to themselves, well, maybe there's more to Jesus than we realized. Maybe he's a prophet who has been sent from God. Maybe we need to pay careful attention to him. But that is not what they concluded. Instead, they went on to say, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The people of Nazareth were blinded by the familiar and humble origins of Jesus. They looked at Jesus and said, We know who you are. We know where you grew up. We see your family. We know your mother. We know your brothers and sisters. The wisdom and miracle-working power of Jesus did not lead them to believe in him. Rather, the familiar and humble origins of Jesus led them to discredit him in spite of his wisdom and power. Donald English writes, we may reflect that the human mind is virtually able to find reasons for defending any attitude, word, or action. Rather than perceiving the depth of his teaching, the compassion of his actions to the needy, and the significance of his having come home to them again, Jesus' kinfolk chose to belittle him by reference to his background 
their familiarity with him and his family. The people of Nazareth found a way to defend and justify their attitudes and actions toward Jesus in spite of the evidence before them. The response of the people from his hometown also serves to remind us of the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus was obvious to those around him. He had flesh and blood like they had flesh and blood. He went to sleep and woke up like they went to sleep and woke up. He wore wore clothes like they wore clothes. He had to grow up like they had to grow up. He ate and drank like they ate and drank. What we see is that the humanity of Jesus prevented the people of Nazareth from beholding the glory of God in the person of Jesus. Instead of worshiping the Son of God, they took offense at him. And the Greek word that is translated offense can also be translated as stumbling block. For the people of Nazareth, the familiarity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus proved to be a stumbling block, preventing them from believing in Jesus. And Jesus marveled at their unbelief. There are two times in the New Testament when Jesus is said to marvel or stand amazed. On one occasion, Jesus marveled at the faith of a Roman centurion who demonstrated absolute confidence in Jesus's ability to heal his servant. In other words, Jesus marveled at his great faith. The only other time where Jesus is said to marvel or stand amazed is here in our passage when he was amazed by the lack of faith on the part of the people of Nazareth. James Edwards writes, What amazes God about humanity is not its sinfulness or propensity for evil, but its hardness of heart and unwillingness to believe in him. That is the greatest problem in the world, and herein lies the divine judgment on humanity. Humanity wants a spectacular sign of God, or like the devil, a great display of divine power. But it does not want God to become a human being like one of us. The people of Nazareth see only a carpenter, only a son of Mary, only another one of the village children who has grown up and returned for a visit. If only God were less ordinary and more unique, then they would believe. The servant image of the son is too prosaic to garner credulity. God has identified too closely with the world for the world to behold him, too closely with the town of Nazareth for it to recognize in Jesus, the son of God. Humanity wants something other than what God gives. The greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept the God who condescends to us in only a carpenter, the son of Mary. The humanity of Jesus was a stumbling block for the people of Nazareth. In response to the rejection he faced, Jesus quoted a familiar proverb when he said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus applied the proverb to three concentric circles with each one becoming more narrow. First, it was his hometown of Nazareth. Then it was his relatives and finally his own household. The reading of the text indicates that Mary and Joseph had numerous children after Jesus was born. Jesus had four brothers named James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and at least two sisters whose names we do not know. 
Later on, after Jesus rose from the grave and appeared to him, James became a prominent leader in the early church who was willing to die as a martyr for his faith in Jesus. Jude also became a leader in the church and wrote a letter that is included in scripture that you can find right before the book of Revelation. Amazingly, Jude does not refer to himself as a brother of Jesus, but as a servant of Jesus. The fact that Jesus' brothers came to believe in him, serve him, and even die for him is an extraordinary testimony to the truth of the gospel. Nonetheless, during his ministry, his hometown, his relatives, and even his own household rejected him. What was a stumbling block for the people of Nazareth would become a stumbling block for many. And the offense taken by the people of Nazareth was only a taste of what was to come. You see, Jesus would not only be rejected in Nazareth, but he would eventually be rejected in Jerusalem. The Jewish religious establishment in Jerusalem could not accept Jesus as the Messiah, God's chosen king. And the offense of Christ, which began with his humble beginnings, would only grow with his humiliating death. Jesus was put to death on a Roman cross as though he were a low-life criminal. This was not how Jews envisioned their Messiah would accomplish God's will. And non-Jewish people found it preposterous to put their faith in a man who was crucified by the Roman government. We see this later on in the writings of Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, we read, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to, thus, but, to the, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and, Greek, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. A crucified Messiah was offensive to many Jews and simply foolish, foolishness to many non-Jews. What was a stumbling block then is a stumbling block now. The proclamation of Christ crucified remains a stumbling block for many people today. You see, we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We preach that there is one true and living God that he exists eternally as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is the creator of everyone and everything, and he created us in his image to know him, to obey him, to enjoy him, to glorify him. Sadly, we have all sinned against him. We have all disobeyed him. We have all sought to be in charge of our own lives rather than submitting to him as our God and King. And our rebellion against him means we are deserving of judgment. If God were only to give us what we deserve, we would all face eternity in hell. 
But God in his loving kindness has provided a way for us to escape the judgment we deserve. And he did so at great cost to himself. He did so by providing Jesus Christ, God the Son, in the flesh to come and die for us on the cross, taking the wrath of God upon himself so that we might receive the forgiveness of sins. And he rose from the grave conquering death so that we could be guaranteed that we will receive the gift of eternal life. After appearing to many people, he ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And we preach that he will return. There will be a final judgment and everyone will be held accountable. You see, this is a stumbling block for many people because in our sin, we do not like to acknowledge that there is a God, there is a king to whom we must submit, to whom we will be held accountable. In our flesh, we don't like to be told that we are sinful people. We don't like to be told that we are not good people and that we cannot fix our sin problem. We don't like to be told that we have to repent of our sin and believe in Jesus in order to be saved. And our natural self, we don't like to believe that a man who died 2,000 years ago somehow paid the price for our sins. We don't want to believe in the miraculous. We don't want to believe in miraculous things such as the resurrection and the ascension and the second coming of Jesus. This is a stumbling block today for many people. Yet it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And therefore we preach this gospel, which we know is a stumbling block because we know that though it is a stumbling block, it is still the power of God for salvation. And we know that God in his power, in his wisdom, in his loving mercy is able to overcome our opposition, our hostility, our sinfulness, and bring us to repentance and faith in him. And so we know that though the gospel is a stumbling block to many, God is mighty to save. And therefore, we do not back down. We do not shy away from preaching the gospel, even though it is a stumbling block. Because Jesus was a stumbling block, he faced rejection. What we read in the beginning of Mark chapter 6 reminds us that rejection was a common experience for Jesus and his followers. They were rejected by religious leaders such as the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were rejected by members of Jesus' own family. They were rejected by the people of his hometown. They were rejected by Roman officials. Therefore, we should not be surprised when people today reject Jesus and when people reject us because we are following Jesus. In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Brothers and sisters, when we are wholeheartedly following Jesus, we are sure to experience rejection along the way. Rejection may come from family members or friends. Rejection may come from neighbors or coworkers. Rejection may come from governments and those in authority. Rejection may come from many different 
places. Yet this passage, along with the bigger picture we see in Scripture, offers us comfort and hope in spite of the rejection that comes with following Jesus. You see, we are able to find comfort when we experience rejection because we know that Jesus experienced far greater rejection than we ever will. You see, it wasn't just rejection from friends. It wasn't just rejection from his hometown and relatives and members of his household. It wasn't just rejection from the crowds and the religious leaders. Jesus faced the ultimate rejection. When he died for us on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced forsakenness at the cross because he was punished for our sin. He experienced the ultimate rejection so that we don't have to. Brothers and sisters, we may face rejection, but we do not need to fear the ultimate rejection because God has accepted us in Christ Jesus when we have repented of our sins and trusted in him. Not only do we not have to fear the ultimate rejection, but we also have comfort when we face rejection because Jesus is with us. The one who experienced the ultimate rejection is with us to comfort us when we face rejection. Jesus knows rejection and he promises that he is with us to comfort us and to strengthen us and to empower us to persevere in spite of rejection. Jesus is with us. After the people of Nazareth rejected Jesus, we read that Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. One of the themes we see in Mark's gospel is how people do or do not come to faith in Jesus as he proclaimed the gospel and began to establish the kingdom of God. What we see is that Jesus rewarded people who came to him with faith, but he did not reward those who responded to him with hostility or unbelief. Now, when Mark says he could do no mighty works there, we should not understand that to mean their lack of faith was akin to kryptonite with Superman. It's not as though Jesus lost his power, but he wasn't going to reward their lack of faith with miracles. On the other hand, we see that Jesus rewarded those who came to him in faith. We saw that in the last chapter with Jairus, the synagogue ruler, who came to Jesus in faith, believing that he could heal his daughter. We saw that with the woman who had experienced bleeding for 12 years and who believed that if she just touched Jesus, she could be healed. Jesus rewarded their faith. What we see in verses 7 through 13 is that in spite of the rejection in Nazareth, the mission continued. In spite of the unbelief and in spite of the rejection, the mission not only continued, but also expanded. In one sense, the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth prepared the disciples for some of the challenges they would face as Jesus sent them into the mission field. In verse 7, we see what was anticipated in chapters 1 and 3. In chapter 1, Jesus called the disciples, and in chapter 3, he appointed the disciples. In chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 14, we read, And he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. 
So what Jesus intended to do with his disciples from the beginning began to be fulfilled as he sent them out two by two. He called them in order to teach them and equip them to carry out and multiply his ministry. And it really is amazing that he entrusted his ministry to these men when they hadn't done a lot to prove themselves at this point. But even though they didn't possess the greatest pedigree, and even though they didn't have a ton of ministry experience, and even though at times they demonstrated they were confused and lacked faith, they had been with Jesus, and he sent them out with his authority. James Edwards writes, the sending of these particular individuals and at this stage of their understanding of Jesus testifies that the fulfillment of the word of God depends not on the perfection or merit of the missionaries, but on the authoritative call and equipping of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I hope you are encouraged by this. We may feel inadequate at times. We may feel as though we don't know enough. We haven't studied the Bible enough. We have not matured enough in our faith in order to be used by the Lord to advance the gospel and to make disciples. But what we see here is that Jesus was willing to use these men who were very inadequate in a number of ways. He was willing to send them out to carry out his ministry. And the key was that they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus and they were sent by Jesus. And this ought to encourage us that the Lord can use us in spite of our inadequacies, in spite of our weaknesses. He can use us to carry out his work. And it's not because we are great. It's not because we are smart. It's not because we are knowledgeable. It's because he is great. And he is at work in and through us. Our confidence is not in ourselves. It is in Jesus. I also think it's important for us to see that he did not send them out and or that he sent them out uh, in pairs as it serves to remind us of the value of partnering with other believers in the work of the ministry. It is a good thing for us to pray with other believers. It is a good thing for us to study the Bible with other believers. It is a good thing for us to do the work of evangelism and discipling with other believers. We are to do the work of the ministry in community, in fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. As they went out two by two, Jesus encouraged them to be grateful guests with those who received them and strongly warned those who did not receive them. When Jews would travel outside of Palestine, they were required to shake off the dust before returning home, lest they would pollute the holy land. So when Jesus told his disciples to shake the dust off, if you are not received by those when you are preaching the gospel, he was telling them, treat these um, Jewish towns as though they are pagan towns. It would be a strong indictment of these people um, for the disciples to shake the dust off when they left those towns. And so they were to issue strong warnings to those who rejected the gospel. And with those instructions, Jesus sent them out. And we read that they preached, cast out demons, and healed the sick, demonstrating that the kingdom of God had, in fact, broken into the world in the person and ministry of Jesus. How did the Jesus and the disciples respond to rejection? They continued the work of sharing the gospel with many people. In spite of hostility, unbelief, and rejection, they did not retreat. They did not shrink back. 
they did not give up. Jesus did not abandon his plan. Instead, they advanced. They continued the mission. Jesus multiplied the gospel ministry throughout the region by equipping and sending the disciples. After, and after Jesus ascended into heaven, the church continued this pattern of multiplication as we read in the book of Acts. Listen to what we read in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we read, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And in Acts chapter 12, verse 24, we read, But the word of God increased and multiplied. Brothers and sisters, this is the kind of multiplication we want to be a part of. We want to see gospel ministry multiplied throughout our region. We want to see gospel ministry multiplied throughout Snohomish County and beyond. But it begins with a right understanding of discipleship. We must, first of all, come to Jesus. We must, first of all, sit at his feet. We must, first of all, abide in him that he might send us out. We first of all come to Jesus, and then we are sent by Jesus into the mission field. And we need to fully adopt the mindset that we are missionaries. We do not want to become complacent in our walk with Jesus. We do not want to become apathetic or indifferent toward those who do not know him. We are all called to be missionaries. As followers of Jesus, every single need, uh, one of us needs to sit and go. We sit at the feet of Jesus to learn from him, to grow in him, to abide in him, and then we go to tell other people about him. Thomas Hale, who is a physician, said this, no one can say, since I'm not called to be a missionary, I do not have to evangelize my friends and neighbors. There is no difference in spiritual terms between a missionary witnessing in his hometown and a missionary witnessing in Kathmandu, Nepal. We are all called to go, even if it is only to the next room or the next block. If you are following Jesus, do you understand that you are a missionary? As followers of Jesus, we will face rejection. That is a reality of living in a sinful world that is in rebellion against the Lord. Nonetheless, we cannot shrink back. We are called to participate in the ministry of Jesus and sow gospel seeds. How might the Lord use you? How might the Lord use you to advance the gospel? Whom has God placed in your life that does not yet know Christ? How can you pray for them? How can you reach out to them? How can you engage them with the gospel? Brothers and sisters, I want every single one of us to consider this in our own lives. How does the Lord want to use us with the people whom he has sovereignly placed in our lives? We are missionaries, and we are inadequate in many ways, yet the Lord will use us for his good purposes. We do not need to fear rejection because Jesus has already faced the ultimate rejection on our behalf. 
and he is with us when we face rejection. He is with us to comfort us, to strengthen us, and to help us persevere. And as he does this, we can be faithful to carry out his ministry in his name and in his power and his strength. Let's pray that the Lord will use us to multiply the word of God, to multiply the gospel throughout Snohomish County and beyond. Let's be used by the Lord for his good and glorious purposes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that your word comforts us and challenges us and encourages us. And we pray that we would prepare ourselves for the reality of rejection, knowing that Jesus faced the ultimate rejection for us. Help us not to fear rejection. Help us not to fear man. Help us to abide in Jesus and find our comfort and hope in him. Help us to be faithful to carry out the work of the ministry. Help us to adopt the mindset of missionaries. Help us to prayerfully consider whom you have placed in our lives, that we might engage them with the gospel, that we might see the word of God increase and multiply. We pray that you would use us to that end. And we thank you for this, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.